0: Tell your story, build your brand, artmedianorthwest.com, A-R-T-M-E-D-I-A-N-W.com. Now, enjoy this conversation with Yussi Sutu. Your new book is out. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Right, right. So I, I, I have a friend in Hungary, Zoli. Um, and yeah. we have been friends for many, many years. We had lots of adventures together. And he has a daughter, and I saw her, his daughter grow. And about age 14, she started drawing beautiful drawings. And kind of, at the time when I saw the drawings, I said, somebody must write a, uh, a story book to match these beautiful drawings. And uh, that, that idea was kind of there. And then I had a, a granddaughter two and a half years ago. And then when she was born, you know, I was kind of uh, motivated and inspired to write. And I wrote two stories in this book. And the first one is a shorter story. It's about the dynamics between a father and the son. And uh, they're talking, you know, the father is trying to persuade his son to eat an apple. The son is sick, is in bed. And then I weave stories about a grandfather and a granddaughter and bees and how fruits are grown and how they, are, how they become ripe and get all the nutrients from the, from the ground. And I kind of draw from my from my parental grandfather at uh, that line father and grandfather whose pictures up on the wall the four of us are there with my father grandfather great grandfather down there and so all of those all of those four men they had the same name as I I have okay and they all shared this deep love of nature like really deep visceral love of nature yeah and and they looked at the leaves and at the bugs and at the weather and the the wind and the water, and just constantly it was in their vocabulary, in their habits, in their lifestyle, in their theme, right? It's like the flower is flowering, the other one's not, and this is this, and the the bee is there, and the honey is here. And so I grew up in this environment. They would always um, gather um, medicinal flowers and dry them in the attic, so it was, all the attics were full of stuff, you know, some dry and some eaten by rodents some healthy some not healthy but always doing stuff right mm-hmm. and the father and grandfather were all beekeepers and then two of my uncles were beekeepers and then my aunt's husband was beekeeper so when i we used to go to my grandfather's house there was always uh you know beeswax and and uh Beekeeping equipment, and I had to help them from early age. And I was, you know, I was tongued by my first, by the first bee when I was one year old. I started, oh, wow. I hardly I started to walk, and I got my first kind of baptizing, you know. <laughs> so, never thought of it that way. Right. And uh, so, uh, that, so they were very, very close to nature, mm-hmm. even though they lived in a relatively small town. And I think from all of those people that I knew, they were the most closest to nature. Okay. And uh, my father would take me all the time to the outside. So pretty much every weekend, I was in the woods, like for twenty years. And and I see that you know some, you know, in modern lifestyle, you kind of get divorced from. You look at a, a true fruit, you have no idea where it's coming from. It may come from Mexico, may come from a greenhouse, may come from you know hydroponics whatever you don't know what it is right but that that you know that uh, organic thing that how things are you know how do they grow and how do they uh, make flowers and how do the bees pollinate and what role they are playing this whole thing this this harmony of nature and nutrients and stuff and i wanted to pass that on to kind of like a educational story and also a lot of my dialogues with my sons was similar to that so that's the first story, kind of like the lighter one of the two stories. Sure. The second story is, um, that's the, I think that carries the weight of the book, the second story. And that one is probably like two or three stories uh, weave together. It's, so it's like the three, siblings. Yeah, the siblings. So there's like three generations in there and then some are related to each other, some are not related to each other. And uh, they have some common themes that uh, kind of bring, bring them together for a day. And I'm not going to give away the yeah, story. But so I think it, it draws on, first, my relationship with my sister. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a very good relationship and we did a lot of stuff together. So kind of the the siblings, the first couple of siblings kind of, you know, modeled them. And then I saw a lot of uh, strife. I don't know if that's the right word, strife. Yeah. In um, in several families that were related to me, or direct families or neighboring families. or And it was the common theme was that... Siblings would argue over some inheritance that at the time may have felt, may, uh, may have been important to them. And like, felt
0: uh, like something significant. Right, but...
1: like financially, or, or, or maybe just the fact that, oh, I, I inherited this from my dying parents, like a sigh, like the one, the, uh, the grass cutting sigh, or, or a, a sharpening stone that they never used after that. They inherited and it sat in the mud for four years. And I just looked at this thing and four years later, then the sibling comes and starts arguing, why do you have the sharpening stone? You never used it. And then my aunt would say, well, you have the sight, you never used that. And they were like 85 years old and half, half blind, half deaf, arguing about these two objects that are totally irrelevant, right? And then some of them would not talk for decades. And I was not allowed to go from one house to the other even though I have lots of relatives that like biking or walking distance. And then I had to not tell one family that I visited the other family, because I wanted to go everywhere. That's sad. And then the was instructed, well, if you go there, don't tell the other ones that you went there. And then if you eat apple pie, they only eat half, because if you go to the other one, they're also going to give you apple pie, but you cannot tell the first family that you already are full or whatever, like this. And then uh, like fifty years later, they would become friends. Then another couple of, of uh, siblings would get in argument. And then, so it was, like, stupid stuff like that. And somehow in Eastern Europe, they're, like, masters of it. Maybe in the U.S. also, but um, I haven't been exposed as much in the U.S. to this kind of stuff. But there is, like, they made an art form out of it. So I, I just wanted to kind of weave that into the story. Yeah. And, um, and
0: hopefully hope- illustrate the you know, those stupid things don't right. have to get right. in the way right. of these relationships right. that right. are important. Yeah.
1: And then I had uh, my nieces, uh, they went to Romania, they were, I don't know, teenagers, they saw one of these tribes, they actually, um, and they were the US, so they were not intimately familiar, they heard that there was something, but they went there as like, you know, naive American children to go and visit the loving and caring uh, relatives in Romania, and turns out they, they turns out they ended up in the middle of a strife, and they were looking what's going on. We we don't we are not familiar with this, and then actually held hands and said. Then they whispered to each other that we're never gonna do this, right? Yeah, and and um,
0: that's powerful,
1: right? Right. So you know, if, if I think the second story is both for children and adults, I think children will get one part of it, and and if they read the book twenty years later, they were gonna get the second part of it or mm-hmm. the second meaning. Yeah. Of it.
0: Well, I know that's a beautiful thing about books too, is that we can continuously learn things from them and see things we didn't see before. You know,
1: right? So, well, I hope I I haven't sold many, so I don't know if it's gonna be successful or not. I I really, when it came out, it reflects what I wanted the book to be. Yeah. So it is me. The book is me. Well, whether true. whether people will like it or not, or will be become popular, that's the second part. But I am. I put it out there. What what's, what was part of me?
0: Yeah. And that's what art is, you know. Um, I think that illustrates it in a great way.
1: And with Lizzo, the illustrator, just I wanted to mention that she has a very, very delicate soul. And she tunes in very much to my stories. And I saw that early on. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't have to tell her anything. Like a couple of sentences, she she gets it and she just reflects that, that feeling, right? I didn't have to instruct her what to draw. She just she was she volunteered. She almost like it. just jumped on on the opportunity to, to draw. And now I'm writing another book, my my uh, you know memoir, childhood memoir, and I will ask her to illustrate. But that's a different, totally different theme, right? It's teenage boys doing crazy things. So I don't know what kind of drawing she would come up with. But you sure. know she's very creative. So yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing that.
0: <laughs> well, I will put links to the book definitely on the website and on the podcast. Well, when, I appreciate that. When this that. comes out. Yeah, and I would encourage everybody to check it out mm. because it really is very cool and a unique story and unique artwork. Everything is can be enjoyed by adults and children of all ages. Mm. And um, it's available on Amazon right, and, right. and in local bookstores right. oftentimes. It is called The Siblings and Other Stories by Jussi Suto. Can you say your right. name correctly? Uh
1: Jussi Suto, or actually the way it's pronounced in Hungarian is Jussi Sütte, Sütte means baker. Uh, I didn't know that. Yes.
0: So can you tell us about your childhood?
1: So I, I grew up in, um, in Romania, and Romania was um, probably at the bottom of the totem pole of the Eastern European countries. Like um, East, East Germany was way better off financially, Hungary was way better off, Poland was way better off. Soviet Union was way better off, Yugoslavia was way better off, Czechoslovakia was, and Romania was at the bottom, right? And then inside Romania, I lived in a poor town, which was at the bottom of Romania, right? And then I was an ethnic minority, so even within that, you know, being at the bottom, you're even at the bottom of the bottom.
0: Can you speak about that, being an ethnic right, minority right. So, in Romania? So right, Transylvan- right. Transylvania. Transylvania, right.
1: Mm. So Transylvania was a part of... Uh, Either the Ottoman Empire, the Hungary was part of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, part of Romania. And there were lots of minorities living there. So Hungarians were um, like two million people and then lots of Germans. And then uh, after World War I, Romania got Transylvania and, and, you know, we lived there along them. And then um, during communism, Ceaușescu really wanted to kind of discriminate against the Hungarians. He just hated them kind of like Trump, you know, discriminates against uh, Latinos or Mexicans, or he keeps saying bad things. So he was kind of that thing. And to an extent that, for example, uh, there were no officers in the army, Hungarian officers. There were no policemen. There were no leaders. There were no CEOs, no directors, Hungarians, or or just very rarely. I mean, it wasn't, was not even close to representative of the makeup of the population. And, and... um, you know they wouldn't let us use our language. So they they were like they tried to sc- close the Hungarian school school that were there were 500 years and they tried like everything to close them down. My mother was a Hungarian teacher. They tried to like uh, annihilate her, not her, not let her teach, take away everything she had. Like she was clinging to this this opportunity to teach the sweet m- maternal tongue. The Hungarian language, which is a very special language because it's not related to anything. Right. (laughs) It's like it came from from, uh, outer space. Like it's like totally different and has its own value system, its own Mm -hmm. mathematics and all that. And so it is valuable, right? But the Romanians didn't see it that way. And mostly the the locals didn't have it. The locals lived along Hungarians for centuries, so they didn't bother. But the government was definitely anti-Hungarian. Wow. And and then so like I went and asked for money for something and the Romanian gets twice as much as I do. We have the same rights, same everything. And they just, you know, so many, many, uh, I don't want to get into too many details. So, you know, imagine if blacks would not be allowed to be um, officers in the military. Hmm. Like, like you go and you look at a thousand, a uh, thousand officers, not one black. Right. That would be something that would say that's not that's representative, not right? Right about or this. not one yeah. Latino, or not yeah. one Asian American, right? right. You know, then you say, then you say there's something there that's not right.
0: Right. Wow. So that was a in that way it was a r- very rough upbringing. Yeah. Now your father was a big influence yeah. on you in many ways. So can you speak about yeah. that? How you became an artist? Right. I mean, I think of you. If I start with you know art, karate, you're an engineer. You are you play music, you sing, you uh, mm. you windsurf, you ski, mm. you climb mm. mountains, Yeah. you teach karate. <laughs> uh, I'm, now, sure, now I'm, that, I'm sure I'm missing like 80 that, other now things. Now that you're
1: putting it in a list, you know, it may sound like a <laughs> long list. Well, I think I, well, first of all, I, I want to live the life at its fullest. Yes. And I don't believe in afterlife. So what? what you see is what you get in my that's my belief system and you know some people may or may may not agree with me on that i had a i think i had a very i was very fortunate actually looking back with all the bad things and the grayness and and coldness of communism there were a lot of very bright spots in my life yeah um first of all i was i was surrounded by a a lot of loving women and they just loved me to death my mother, my we had a an in house nanny for five years that actually slept in our bedroom. And and so my grandmothers all loved me. My sister was three years older, you know, she baby babied me all my life. My aunts, I had a godmother, I had then I had a baroness teacher for eight years. So how many people have a, a noble person come to your house and well, you are a noble person, Danny, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, this was a true <laughs> so baroness. I didn't know this was a comedy, <laughs> El- Elizabeth von Blomberg, right? And she was, uh, she they, they had like a giant uh, villages and lakes and hundreds of horses. And then after World War II, they lost it all, and their mm-hmm. parents died. And she, there was this ultra educated woman with nothing left, and then she made a living by teaching languages. So every week, twice, she would come to my house, teach me German, and then we just Talked in German about the monarchy and and the life in Germany and the life in Paris and the horses they had and like she put me in this Alice in Wonderland alternative reality. Yeah, right?
0: this is not the upbringing of yeah, very many people I know.
1: Exactly. I mean, the <laughs> the communists were going to like steel factories, thousands of them in these gray machine shops and no colors. Like the the picture of the dictator. And here I am with the baroness. I'm conversed like I'm in Vienna drinking coffee not coffee we didn't have coffee but (laughs) but uh talking about so you know that took me in this interesting universe sort of an alternate reality in a way yeah Yeah. i I was really fortunate and and my father pushed this i mean he saw that she's like very special and she just just you know okay you gotta take the lesson and i didn't want at the beginning i I don't want to like you know you're a boy you want to go and run outside and no 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 you want to you need the, the lesson and then uh, so my godfather and godmother, my Godfather was a political prisoner. Mm. Uh, so actually, they didn't baptize me until I was six because he was in prison. He was in prison because he wrote something about ethnic minorities across the Carpathian Mountains, on the other side of the Carpathian Mountains. And the Romanian government didn't want that to become public because they said the Hungarians are only on the west side of the Carpathian Mountains, and he proved that he was actually on the east side of the Carpathian Mountains, also Hungarians. So they put him in jail, so they had to wait for him to come out. And he was a painter and quite an accomplished painter, and also a professor at the arts institute. Oh wow! And then his wife was used to be his his uh, student, and she was a textile artist. So I would go to them all the time, and they had books and paintings everywhere, and textile and silk coloring, and so I would go there. There was this uh, cavalcade—I don't know if I pronounce it right—like uh, a smorgasbord of colors and and art and. Uh, and then I would take my drawings to my godfather, and he would like say, "No, that's not how you draw the eye. You know, you have to draw this, the eyelid, that, that." He would never say a good word. He would just say, "You know, no, it's you know, stunk and bad, this, that." <laughs> but I would I would keep at it. I didn't didn't care because I was I was always surrounded by a lot of good teachers, and they would like oh, constantly tell me how to fix it. And I, it's part of of who I am. That's yeah. why. I don't take criticism bad at all. You can say that I suck and I will work harder. That's it. I'm not taking it that at all. And even in karate, I went to Japan last month and I'm 56 and I bow my head in front of the 42-year-old, Japan, Japan all Japan champion, and I say, you know, and teach me because right. you're better than me. And so, so I, I got a lot from them on, on that part. And then uh, that's a gift, right. you know, being able to right. uh,
0: not let criticism
1: get under your skin, <laughs> right? And there but was another, there was another angle. Um, uh, the other angle was that my mother was Unitarian, mm-hmm. and, and uh, it's a very interesting religion because it's the only re- only religion that came from Transylvania. So they actually started from the Kolosvar, the city of uh, Cluj in Cluj, Romanian, yeah. right? And uh, this started in 1540. And so it was, the whole Europe was Catholic, like, like devout Catholic. And then some, some uh, um, re- reformation started in Germany, right? With Calvin and Luther. Mm-hmm. And they went, let's say if, if uh, on a scale from one to 10, Catholicism is a 10, then Lutherism is maybe an eight or maybe a seven, and then Unitarian was like a, a one. I like went way off the scale like they said that you know as far as how different it was yes yes like like uh in the theology yeah like the the other religion other reformant uh religions they they said okay well we don't recognize the pope but it's still the the father son and holy spirit and there's still life after death and there's still hell and heaven and still there's a God who listens to you all the time and all that stuff, right? So there was a good
0: 80% that was the same. Right, right.
1: It covered most of it, right? And then, uh, and that Jesus was a, a divinity. And then here comes this dude in, in, in Cluj uh, in 1540, like Middle Ages, right? He stands on a stone, and he says, actually... Jesus was not divine. He was a man. He just wrote a, he, they just wrote a book about his teachings. And we should take the book as a book. You know, it's mostly true. And like, you know, and the Pope you know, has nothing to do with this. And you, know, and you shouldn't. Uh, and there's no heaven and no hell. And it became so popular that the entire city switched to Unitarianism in like a month. Wow. Imagine going to Salt Lake City, Utah, standing on a stone and turning all Mormons into a different religion. Like a religion X. I mean, that has to be a very good speech. That right? would be some speech. That, be, that that yeah, would be some yeah, speech. Yeah, right? like
0: Martin Luther King. Yeah. And, Even more, uh,
1: because, you know, for Martin Luther King's message takes decades. Right, true. To really listen. And, and uh, so so what happened is that there was this culture of not really expecting God to do good for you. As you were expected to do good stuff yourself. You You had to be proactive. So the people that I was exposed to, they were like, yeah, there's no life after that. we have X number of days left, so we better build it or do it or paint it or draw it, or right? And uh, and then my sister's godfather was the bishop of the Unitarian Church. So on, on Sundays I would go to church with my mother, then would go to my godfather and godmother who are both teachers at the university, the top arts university in Cluj. Then we'd go to the bishop right? And we talk about religion. And I'm like six years old, like I'm a kid. <laughs> <laughs> then I go home, I go and I have a baroness teaching me German and teach me about <laughs> Paris and the horse races they used to attend. And the balls they had on the lake with a live, uh, a live orchestra while they were floating on the lake on a pontoon wow. in, in, 20, in 1930, before World War II. And, you know, just this big, things, right? And then I have my father, grandfather, great grandfather, all doing bees and wood and wax and cutting and sharpening tools. And, and I was building bows and and you know, slingshots and this and then we lived in a valley in a small town. And there were two hills kind of the you know, and then one of the hills was our backyard. And it was like I was there all the time for like 15, 16 years, I was in the woods, with my slingshot and with my bow and with 20 other guys just running like crazy. Right. That freedom was unbelievable. Now at the time it felt like that this is normal. This is normal. Yeah. Now I think, you know, kids in Hillsboro, I kind of feel sorry for them. They cannot experience that freedom. No, not even close. That's a different place in time. It's not but... even close. And actually I'm thinking that if we were to design a city from scratch, we should try to design that freedom for children. Mm. Somehow build it in by constitution that children should have the the ability to safely play from age 6 to 18 with no parental supervision. I think that's a huge, huge, huge value. In a clean, you know, non-polluted environment, safe. So that's, that's how I grew up, right? Yeah. That's the... 11 minutes version they have <laughs> like okay. 11 hour version yeah.
0: can we talk about there's a very cool story about your dad foresting
1: the right side right right you know i mentioned how how closely he was tied to nature yes and he was also beekeeper and all that and and uh, he was teaching math to everybody like i remember him always sitting and teaching or going out with his bees or his bicycle that mm-hmm. was his his mode of operation and this was before I was born. He was teaching a director of a giant nursery, like a giant communist nursery math so he can actually pass his high school diploma equivalent examination because he didn't have it. So he taught him for a couple of years and then and for free. He would teach for free for for like 15 years. He just didn't charge nothing. Sometimes he would do six hours teaching after the four hour teaching in the morning, he would come home and eat, go back, at 2 and then till 8 p.m., just do math for free, for like 50 kids. Wow. Whoever wanted to show up for extra tutoring, he would just squeeze the butter out of them and just pump as much math in their brains as possible. And then he would come home and we had nothing. We had rapport. And then when I was, you know, 15 years old, I was growing and needed meat. Then he started teaching for meat and they would bring him a piece of meat and we would eat a little bit of meat. But this was before I was born. So this guy is coming to him for, I don't know, every week or so and, and then... He passes his exam and he's very appreciative and he tells my dad, so how can I pay you back? And my dad said, don't worry, I mean, I just did it out of, you know, for fun. And the guy said, no, 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 I really want, you know, I I want to show my appreciation somehow. And then they're sitting and looking at this barren hill. And the hill is, I do not know, maybe like 500 foot tall. So it takes about an hour to climb and maybe a a mile and a half long. So it's a sizable hill, right? Yeah. I mean, walking up to the top and to the end and back is probably a, three hour walk right and and it had some trees on it but very few very few i mean most of it maybe 90 percent, was barren And my father looks up and said wouldn't it be nice to have a forest on this hill and then the guy says huh yeah well how many how what kind of trees i said well pine pine wood you know a certain kind of pine that grows i said well how many would you need and my father said well about a million he said yeah if you can find a truck to actually truck it i can give you a million trees and then my father, then he went to somebody else, I don't know whom, and he got the truck, and he trucked in truckloads of, of these seedlings, these tiny trees. And then he would get all the high school students out to the hill on the, on weekends. And he, Because he was like a, a very well-respected math teacher, and math carried a lot of weight. If he said, you better come and plant trees, kids showed up and planted trees. It wasn't official, it was, right. they weren't required. He just told them, you come and plant trees. <laughs> Then right? the truck showed up, and then for about two years, they planted the forest and And when I was born, the trees were about one or two years old, so they just finished by the time I was born. So I grew up with this so so I, when I started to ski, I was two and a half years old, and the trees reached my waist or <laughs> my my chest. Now the trees are fifty eight years old, and it's a giant ecosystem of deer and owls and fox and 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 uh, rabbits and and giant trees like it's a wow. beautiful thing you can see it from Google Earth you can came, see came, came from my, from my father math, yeah, from math. math from a math, <laughs> <Yeah>. teacher. <laughs> a math teacher so that's, in, that's in the days like when, the best math story I've heard yeah, in my life yeah and and, and, really and cool. in the in the age when you know we are worried about the global warming and and deforestation you hardly hear uh, success stories about reforestation or mm-hmm. just forestation. forestation. Just take, for take a, a barren land and make it into beautiful forest. Yeah. And then you can see that when you go from the forested part to the non because still at the top of the hill is still bald. Mm-hmm. So about two-thirds of the height of the, of the hill is forested, and the top one-third is barren, mm-hmm. is grassland. The amount of life is in the forest is like 10x more than on the barren part wow like everything is moving there's birds there's fox there's owls there's like you know just just stuff it's almost like a an arboretum or something hmm. you know
0: yeah thank you for that story um so talk about skiing a little bit more you uh were an avid skier still right, are right, right and right, then uh, windsurfing right. you can tell us about that right. a little bit
1: so my father was an avid skier and he kind of instilled that in me so um he taught me skiing when i was two and a half years old, something like that. And I'm very happy that actually all three of my sons learned how to ski, and now my granddaughter has learned how to ski at age two and a half. Oh, wow. So the tradition (laughs) continues. And then he started this tradition in in a town that didn't have a tradition of skiing. Maybe five people skied. And then after he started doing this and teaching a bunch of high school students, now there's hundreds of people skiing like and they go to competitions and whatnot from a from a town that doesn't have that much snow it doesn't have mountains it has hills but not mountains okay and so he he just you know taught me to ski and then there were some in the northern carpathian mountains close to the ukraine border there's a mountain called the rodney mountains and from age five i would he would take me there every year like once or twice, and these like big kind of expeditions, like multi-day, maybe week or two-week long, carrying backpacks, carrying all your whole gear. I go to this hut that has nothing. There's no electricity, no gas. You have to do everything: carry wood, ca- not carry wood, carry your equipment, your sleeping bag, and then you cut the wood there, you make fire, all of that, and just climb up and ski from all these peaks. So, so that that was natural stuff for me, right? When I came to Portland, I saw Mount Hood, and I just took my skis, walked up to the top, and skied down and for me was like no effort I didn't even question that this is a wise or not unwise and after that I told my colleagues and they, they, they said what did you do? <laughs> I said yeah I just walked up the mountain and skied down and then they couldn't believe it. Now I'm more careful now I carry beacons and all of that but at the time just I was in my shirt and I put the skis on my back and I did what I did in Romania. So it was also an escape because um, the town didn't offer that much. So there wasn't much entertainment, like, you know, no TV, almost no radio. Yeah, you could play soccer on the street, get drunk. Maybe those were the two, three things that you could do as an adult or like, you know, it was dirty and, and... cold and you know no colors like in the street when you go here to like a shopping mall you have all, all that visual stimulus imagine you just remove all of that wow. like remove every sign and everything is black and white or gray and just just wears on you yeah you know and then we will go up the mountains we are above the clouds and there's this beautiful we could have been in switzerland right hmm. it's as beautiful as switzerland you have yeah sunshine pristine snow Girls, uh, beautiful uh, forests, you know, clear, crystal clear water, unpolluted water you can drink. For me, it was like the biggest thing I could do in the winter time to go in the mountains, like by far. Now, you know, I have option of playing my $3,000 guitar <laughs> or going to a Broadway show or going to the mountains. So I know I have more more options but at the time I didn't yeah and then I became a racer so I raced for many years I was um, I had the best uh, best uh, result I was fifth in the country in the student division and then mm. I was in the army so they they picked me in the army's top team and then we competed in the winter Spartakiad, which was like a winter triathlon and then we won the gold medal wow but I didn't compete I was a uh, alternate mm. so I was but I was there with the team yeah yeah And um, so I skied a lot. And then I became a ski instructor for five years uh, in Poyana Brasov, which was the the top the elite ski resort. And I instructed many people skiing, like thousands. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I learned English in the process and German. And I practiced my German because I knew German from the Baroness. So I have very, very many very good memories with skiing. Like it, it had a huge impact on my life. Really, really. I mean, it's part of who I am. Yeah. part of who I am and then windsurfing I picked up at age 18 okay. and I'm a good windsurfer so I, I windsurfed a lot I'm not as a good windsurf as I'm a skier skier I think I'm just uh because I started so early in as life a child yeah yeah it's I don't think I just do it you know it just comes naturally windsurfing I still have to think and and I'm definitely not the best when I go windsurfing There's some people are way better than I am in skiing I I feel I can not speed wise because of course the modern racers can beat me in race I haven't raced in 30 years but in terms of coming on any terrain I can just easily do it like I, it's really natural for me yeah. and I feel blessed you know because I I just I was exposed to so many storms and and steep mountains and climbing and all that so it's it's part of who i am and then so windsurfing i'm doing it you know in the gorge all the time i really enjoy that and i at the time when i started windsurfing that was i was 18 i also started karate and i liked karate a lot i was attracted to it and i wasn't very good at it i was i really had to struggle a lot like i had colleagues who started with me and in a few years they became black belts and I was still like a yellow or, or green belt or something. I was like way behind them. Mm. I wasn't flexible enough. I was, my torso wasn't strong enough. My legs were strong, but my torso wasn't. But I really, really wanted to be good because I saw the elegance of the good Karateka and I wanted to, be, I wanted to become one of them. And then uh, I stuck to it. You know, I just, uh, I realized if I do something for decades and I gradually get better at it, eventually I can be very good. And I've been doing karate for, you know, like 40 years now, almost wow. 38, yeah. 38 yeah. 37 years. I've been teaching since 95. Okay. So it's almost like, you know, 24 years. And that's also like part of my daily routine, almost daily routine. And, I, you know, I, I, w- I just want to advise your your listeners, you know, that there is a struggle to become good at something. It's like you, you see me with, you know, I try to learn the guitar and I'm not natural. And even my singing is not natural. And I'm kind of, I'm mediocre, let's say, at best. But if you get that good at something, it really gives you wings. Yeah. And those wings are so valuable that I think it's worth putting in that, those hours to become an... You know, you can be a, a chicken or you can become an eagle. And if you work at it and you grow your wings, you become an eagle you learn how to fly, and then you look back to your life as a chicken, and say, I don't want to go back being a chicken. It's much better being an eagle. Yeah. I can still be on the ground if I want to, but I can fly for sure, right? Yeah. And soaring in a gorge with your wings spread, that is like something. Like, you know, I, I, I went once uh, windsurfing, it was like October, pouring rain. I'm the only guy on the beach. <laughs> go to Stevens to Washington. and say, what am I doing here? Should I get in the water? It's cold, kind of miserable get in the water, and it's just, I just enjoy it. And then a bald eagle shows up <laughs> and flies next to me and catches a fish. Wow. And I'm like, you know, it just, just steps just away, <laughs> steps away from this eagle, right? Uh, and just catches the, the, that perfection of technique and, mm-hmm. and just precision, just, you know, nailing that fish. It was like, nothing even comes, I mean, if had I gone to a movie that night, had I gone to a, uh, play bridge or poker or, not, doesn't even come close right. to the to this this deep enjoyment and satisfaction that that gave me well life right. is
0: you know a series of moments right and right. i think right. uh, you've found a way to enjoy more of them than a lot of people at this point which i think is inspiring to the people that maybe don't always take the time to do that
1: you're <laughs> right i mean it doesn't have to be sports and you know because i I did sports all my life, for me it's, it's second nature. Some people don't like sports, and that's okay. You don't have to be an athlete, you sure. don't have to have muscles, you know, don't have to have a sense of balance. But maybe you can do it through music, maybe you can do it through painting, maybe you can do it through um, you know, writing something, or, or poetry, or, or rap, or whatever, right? Yeah. But there's an extra, there's the average stuff, like right? the average life, you move, you eat, you drive, you work, and then there's this extra stuff when you go to this extra dimension. And that extra dimension is really, really the cream of the life. I mean, Mm. that's, you know, if you don't have that, you're missing out. Yeah. Right. And I think if you try to, if you ever pursue something to reach that, that's really, really, you will have a better life, I think.
0: I think that's well put. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about education? How do you feel like our current system serves people? Like, for example you know, money management, business, things like that, that I think everybody needs. You know, if you want to have a family and a household, you need to basically know how to run a business because you have to manage money, you have to manage, you know, rent and all of these different things. I feel like artists sort of... You know, a lot of people feel like, oh, if I just get good, then somebody, I'll have an agent and a publicist and all Mm -hmm. this stuff, and they'll just do that for me. And that's sort of not the way life works these days. So most artists have other jobs and things like that as well. As far as our current education system goes, you know, kids go to kindergarten, they go through school, they go to college if they do. How does that serve people these days? Is it doing what it should and... How can we fix that? Right. If it's right.
1: not well, that's a loaded question. I know. No, it's, it is. That's not a five-minute question. That's not a five-minute question. It's a very loaded. Um, sure. Well, about uh, money management, communism was the worst example for managing money, right? Because the government was supposed to take care of anybody, they screwed it up. Nobody trusted the government. People didn't have money. Actually, at some point, money even did, didn't even become a, a issue anymore because everybody was poor, equally poor. So the only thing they paid attention is education, right? Or maybe getting an an egg or a piece of meat or some piece of cheese, but nobody had like big cars or big houses or big exotic vacations, nothing. I think the education in the US, it has its advantages. I think the colleges are really good. I think the higher up you go, the better they become. Uh, My sons who go to college, my wife who went to college in the US. I didn't go to college in the US. When I saw, when I see how they taught them and the kind of material they had and the kind of creative stuff they had to do, it was really good. I really, really enjoyed it. I think in the primary, uh, in the elementary education, they could do a better job. Um, I think they, le- they leave kids behind that they shouldn't be left behind. For example, just to give you an example, my parents, as I said, we are very poor. They would take kids hiking every weekend pretty much all their life. I'm not talking 10 times, like thousand times. I have, I have boxes of, of photos of my parents with children and me in there going on a hike or going up playing soccer out in the hills or somewhere. All my three kids in 12 years of education in Hillsboro, they went to five field trips. Total And even that's like one hour away and they're not supposed to take a pocket knife, they're not supposed to take matches, they're not supposed to do anything, so it's like really, really synthetic. Uh, I think, you know, this closeness of nature is not taught here because of the liability and also I think teachers there, they were more, they didn't do it for money and everybody was poor, so I think they just did more out of, of, you know, passion of teaching. I think that they teach here better the... Economics is taught t- better, I think. I think the, um, they teach about uh, nature better and biology better. They, you know, my kids learn stuff in eighth grade I didn't even know in twelfth in grade. We did better math in Romania. I think we were better in math. And mm-hmm. when I took my kids back there to, t- to switch schools, because we did like a hot swap, you know, one week they were here and one week they were there. And then for three months, all three of them said that the locals are better in math than they were same age. But there, there was a lot of bitterness also, a lot of kids, you know, they would like the good teachers, but the bad teachers, they would bad mouth and they would like shout bad words at them and be disrespectful about the the money management. I think I, I see, I see my colleagues also at Intel that they are who are super organized people with Excel sheets. And when they go on a trip, they know everything. We actually had a test once that they asked, you know, what kind of planning you're doing? And one guy pulled out a piece of paper that described his entire trip to London with his family six months ahead with the details of what bus they're going to ride, what they are going to Stonehenge, what they are going to Buckingham Palace, all of that, like down to the amount of dollars for cost and everything. Those people tend not to be very creative. And actually, I find them boring, so I'm not actually associating myself <laughs> with people who have long lists of stuff pre For their financial planning, though, they probably, they probably have a better 401k than I do sure right they will have more money than when they will be old that's for sure um but do they need it all <laughs> do they need it all or do they do they know what to do with or it i don't know could have enjoyed their life I, yeah. their
0: whole life instead of yeah the less. i don't
1: know um I don't know. and you know about promoting your art right so i wrote this book and i said to my wife that i think maybe i will be able to sell 250 copies, right? I sold 60 copies, you know, and I don't know, maybe I, I will sell nothing. I don't know. But definitely, it's not a hot seller, right? Those people already, they like it. And then the yeah. the marketing agent said that uh, books don't sell on merit. Actually, nothing sells on merit. So I could have the world's best book out there and maybe five people buy it. <laughs> and that's it. Could you happen. could have the best YouTube video, and, and if, if it doesn't become viral, Nobody heard of it. Right. Uh, the song we just practiced, the "Somebody Tell Me Somebody uh, Try." Yeah. That song has 300 views on YouTube. Really. Out of which I did 100 <laughs> views. So only 200 other people saw this song, which I think is a should be a million uh, view. Yeah. I mean, it's such a meaningful song in my in my opinion. Yeah. So that poor guy who came up with this song, he got 200, <laughs> 200 views on this mm. song which is awesome right so um so then I, t- I tried to market my video my book and i paid the money pretty significant money and we sold zero mm. so all the money went into zero sales and then i told him you know i don't mind paying some money to but at least i want to see some movement but when it's zero movement so it's it's tough yeah. And and I'm fortunate that I actually have a day job. You got a and, day job still. And so I have a good. a good income and I can afford to do that. But somebody who's rely if I had to live off of the book I wrote, there's no way I I would starve. Yeah. I would die. Okay. So it's it's a tough one. Mm-hmm. It's a tough one. And you know the like the Lady Gaga and Madonna, I think they had a a combination of business savvy and art. Right. They were both artists and they also like they knew what they're doing in terms of money, how to promote, how to advertise, whatever. Right. And for every one of those, there's probably a thousand who are maybe equally good and they, they are not known.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of great musicians. And I think a lot of people that lack confidence because they haven't, I don't know, they just haven't found their stride. Let's talk about your relationships with drawing, mm-hmm. art, photography, things like mm-hmm. that. So when did those things start in your life? And
1: Well, my father liked to draw. Okay. So I saw, he did, uh, he did. Uh, he wasn't good at portrait drawing, but he did like nature drawing. And he, before my birth mostly, so after my birth he didn't do that many, but I, f- I found some of his drawings. So maybe I am I inherited some of that. My mother didn't draw at all. And I played a lot outside and we used, used to take the dead batteries. These were like D batteries, D cell batteries, and then smash them with a stone and take out the internal anode that that there's a graphite rod in the middle of the i don't know if you ever broke a better part not that kind of it has a paste an alkaline paste which is like a yucky paste and inside there's a round rod which is i think made of carbon or something and it's black and then you can use it as a chalk on on cement on a lighter color cement you can use it as a black chalk so i would take those and then wipe off that alkaline yuck with a towel and then use those as chalks. and then so i would draw stuff on the And then I started doing these portraits of kids and I was maybe five years old, six years old. I remember the first one or the one that I remember my earliest memory is that I would do like many, many lines. So I look at the face and then do lines, 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 lines. And then strengthen the ones that were the right ones. So I would do a lot of mistake lines, but then once in a while, uh, a good line would show up and say, oh, this kind of fits, I would like strengthen that. It's almost like probably like neural path work in the brain. You try all of these pathways and then the ones that are successful, they become stronger. Wow. And then I, I would draw and I didn't really become like a respected artist till probably like military service when i was 18 19 because throughout high school i would draw but you know there were others too who drew. i matured after a while and i think my lines became more abstract and more simple i used to draw many lines and now i simplify things and uh it's very hard very hard to make simple drawings that that are expressive and if you get that person's face then it's it's really good it's really Mm. good feeling with the least amount of lines. Almost like saying something with the least amount of words and we, have the, we don't have anything extra.
0: Yeah, or for guitar players, doing a guitar solo with the least amount of notes. Right. Because well, yes. <laughs> sometimes you can say a lot without yes. so many. Yes, yes. Yeah. yes.
1: And then also when I, when I draw, for that period of time, I have this very, very uh, close connection with the person I'm drawing. So it's almost like you're singing a duet and you resonate on some level. The, the frequency, the kind of, yeah. frequency. So when I draw, I have to be, I almost have to become them. And and I'm not looking for a photographic drawing, right? Of course, a drawing cannot be as accurate as a photography, like sure. a picture. But you know, you if you really understand that person and, and kind of look at the skin and the muscles and the expression, and there's something if you catch it, then it's really, really good. And that's when people say, wow, right, that when, when I feel it, that is good, you know, then it's really, really satisfying feeling. And for every good drawing, there's a hundred bad drawings that I throw away. <laughs> so <laughs> I have this short story I can say about uh, one of the portraits. I was uh, I was in the army and it was um, December, like brutally cold. This was in the southern Romania. And I used to draw like a lot of soldiers and some officers that they really had characteristic faces. And I used to draw on the desks. They, we had this, you know, flat desk and I would draw it on with pencil and then paper, whatever I could on pavement, I would draw. And then my lieutenant, he said, you know, you have to... Uh, draw my face. And I said, you know, yes, comrade, I will draw your face. But he had this Really, really boring faces. <laughs> like he wasn't ugly, he wasn't beautiful, he wasn't handsome. He was like you know, you look at the face, you forget it. You look again, you forget sort it of again. Generic, I guess. Like a generic or... face, but I don't know. It was really nondescript face, almost yeah. like a potato. Lacking
0: right? character. Or Lacking something? character, yeah.
1: right? Yeah. I mean, some people are ugly, but they're really ugly in a good way. Like you know, they're really ugly, and they say, "Wow, you are ugly, but that's cool. You know, I can draw that. I can. You have a big nose. You have like asymmetry, or your... <laughs> you have a crooked nose, or one eye is like." Down other this got nothing for him and he was you know not very smart and it kind of you know showed in his face so he said oh i have plenty of time because i'm i'm like the on guard uh like the officer on duty right in the army base and then you can come to my office at 3 p.m and you can draw in." so i go in there outside is like brutally cold i go inside and my fingers are frozen and the guy's sitting there and all these uh, military drills that they do they make these people into mules almost like you know they can sit for hours they can stand for hours they can uh walk for hours they don't question you know so there's not uh they are not the creative kind okay um and if you say well let's we'll stand in the wind for three hours and you just have to look at this sign of you know communism they'll do it they won't complain and and that kind of shows on their face they have this face of like boredom and, and almost like, you know, somehow, some kind of the life is, is, is not there anymore. They're alive, but not alive. So I go and I start drawing the guy. So my, I warm up my fingers and I start drawing and I draw for an hour and a half. And the guy is just sitting motionless. I mean, he's the perfect person. <laughs> he can just, he's like a statue. But the drawing is going nowhere. I mean, like I tried to, I tried to put some life in it and nothing. And I said, you know, sorry, comrade, lieutenant, you know, it's not working. He said, can I see it? and said, no, I'd rather not. Can I make another one? I said, yeah, make another one. We have time. So I start second time. I go for half an hour. It's not going the right direction. I said, sorry, comrade, the lieutenant. I said, yeah, take your time. The guy, he doesn't have to pee or drink or eat nothing. He can just sit there for six hours with the same body posture. Wow. He has all these uh, stars on his shoulder and the. Uh, hat and the, everything the copper buttons and so I do the so usually I start from the eyes so I go and I try from the inner corners of the eyes so if I get this and the, the start of the nose the top of the nose that's where I grow my my drawings usually from but that didn't work in the first two attempts and then then I, I tried to like make some kind of geometric geometry around his head like a Hull like a I'd try like a dodecahedron and then a tetrahedron and the cube and some slanted this and that tried to get something out of this thing right so i was able to make a, a skeleton like a 3d mesh of the main building things of his of his face so i kind of squint, squinted at it, it's like okay he kind of looks like him so and then i kind of drew the eyes and the skin on that thing and it came out a decent drawing and i look at it say okay it's okay he'll be fine with that right but i don't like the drawing then i do all the shiny eyes the shiny stars on his shoulder i kind of you know you know i want to make him happy so i make the drawing and i give it to him and i'm like really tired by now and said oh i look so handsome he's like so happy i said yes you look handsome comrade lieutenant and here and so they have the roll call in the plaza and i walk down from his office and there's two thousand soldiers on the plaza, all in like khaki things, we're waiting for the roll call. And there's a billboard and the billboard has like red letter like red background and white letters with something like long live the uh, communist youth led by the supreme leader, Secretary General Nicolae Ceaușescu to the golden future, something like that, right? We had all these slogans the everywhere. Propaganda. Stuff. Propaganda, yeah. right? And this was, it was lit by neon lights and the big glass covering this whole thing. And the glass is frozen solid. So it's a white, imagine the most pristine white marker board lit in the dark night. <laughs> so I walk down from this office and I look at this white surface and... I see his face uh, appear just like Jesus on the on the this white thing, right? And I look at it and it just doesn't go away. I see his face. So I lick my finger and with like five lines I draw his face. Wow! And and the crowd goes wild, right? The crowd just they just come to me. They like lift me up. They shout. <laughs> they whistle. They like cheer. And it was the best drawing I ever made. Wow! And it melted the next day. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: How has art enriched your life? And if you want to tell the story about We Will Rock You, I think mm, it was, in right, your schoolyard. Right, right.
1: Well, I can, yeah, I can tell the story, and uh, then I can tell you how, how it is, because it definitely enriched my life, big yeah. time, big yeah. time. So the story about We Will Rock You is that when I was 17, they told us that we have to go to forced labor camp. In, in Romania to build a canal between the Danube River and the Black Black Sea coast. And so all uh, me- megalomaniac dictators have some mega project, either a uh, pyramid or a great wall or a giant church or something, right? And then take all the poor bastards and they send them there to move rocks. And then they, they died there. And then thousand years later, the tourists come and pay money to see it. Right? But that's kind of... <laughs> so Ceausescu's project was to dig a canal through the desert. And uh, so they told us you have to go down three months, no pay, crappy food, you dig, right? Just like in the Clint Eastwood movie, he said, you know, my friend, there's two kinds of people, those with loaded guns, and those who dig, he <laughs> would <laughs> dig. <laughs> So they told us to go, and then and then we didn't want to go, of course. And and you know, you take away the summer from seventeen-year-old boys when the summer is the most treasured three months of your time, right? Mm-hmm. No school, you can chase girls, you can play soccer, you can go. Uh, and then kind of a camaraderie formed, and then we started playing the guitar. And some I didn't have a guitar, so but you know, go and sing in the back in the backyard of the school, and then and that's about the time when We Will Rock You came out, and I was just you know I just drawn to this song, and and I learned how to sing it, and I deciphered the lyrics, not everything, because I didn't know what make you don't be someday and whatever, you know, (laughs) somebody better put you back into your place meant. But, you know, whatever I could. Yeah. And then I, you know, and I was singing it with the radio and all that. And then, so we left, we were supposed to go to the canal on June 1st. Almost like, imagine like being sent to Vietnam with a bunch of boys. Right. Of course, it's not murderous, it's not a war. But still there's like a camaraderie, you're like the boys, they go somewhere far away. Together, and that's w- the together. only family you have exactly. and the only group and, you have. It, and, and it changes the dynamic. I actually kind of understand the people who are Vietnam vets are, you know, after so many years, they still ride the motorcycles together and they put effort in, even though they spent one year in Vietnam together. One year, and four years later still, that one year was really, really uh, impactful in their lives. So... Um, so we had the the last day of school for us and then we had a a long recess and then one of the guys brought a speaker and he put it in the window so it was like a u-shaped building and had this courtyard and he opens a window and puts up the it's end of may puts up a speaker and then sp- plays the guitar. And it was his song, Liberance. And he's saying, Liberance, 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 Liberance. And then, you know, everybody's singing. I think it means something like freedom or something in French or whatever. And then, you know, just cheering and girls, they're, you know, singing and all that. And then then I take the microphone and I'm kind of hidden behind the window because the, the angle wasn't very good to be seen, right? So I go there and I take the microphone and And then we do that. And then, you know, like 600 kids, they start, they just get it, right? The whole whole crowd just goes like, it's like, buddy, you're a boy, make a big noise, playing and then, uh, and then they go, we will rock you. So it was like a popular song. And, and uh, so I sing it. And not very good. You know, I did whatever I could. And, you know, I, I go down, I feel like I'm a rock star. You know, I sang, you know, I just, you know, just having the courage to sing it. I knew, I knew it was stressful, but, you know, I did it anyway. And, I, and then, you know, the girls look at me kind of flirtatiously. You know, I was like the star of, the, of that moment and... And then one of my colleagues said, you know, your father came down while you were singing (laughs) and said, wow, what did he think of my song? He said, he asked me, who is this idiot singing this thing? (laughs) And I said, it's Cambrai teacher's own son. (laughs) And I didn't say anything. And I was like, oh, you know, well, looks like my father doesn't understand me when it comes to rock and roll. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So that's that's, that story. About your second half of the question of how it influenced my life, I think... All of these chapters in my life, they add an extra dimension. I think sports and outdoors, one dimension. Art is another dimension. Sometimes there's some crossover, and there's some art in how the... Eagle flies, yes, or how the bees make their honeycomb, right? This, this is beautiful, right? But you know, then the family life is another one. You know, love life, uh, relationships, children growing—that's another another chapter, another dimension in life. But art definitely is is a is a very unique and very strong vector in my life, and I think it made me a better person. I think I'm more appreciative of of art. Like, I, when I listen to a song that I play, played by the artist, I, I like it way better now. Mm-hmm. Because I know the struggle it takes to actually learn it that well. Like, you know, Hotel California by Eagles. I'm like, you know, I've been singing for 20 years. I'm not quarter as good as those guys are. And when I listen to them, I say, wow, they're just so good. They're still so good. Even like 50, 40 years later, they're just so good. And uh, when I watched Bohemian Rhapsodon movie, it's like I was, I like lived every moment of it. Yeah. And, and uh, had I not sang the songs, had I not uh, tried to play the guitar on that songs, you know, I, I would not appreciate it that much. And also, I think it affects my, uh, my thinking. So I think, you know, math and, and music have, have commonalities, these patterns and repetitions. And maybe the reason I'm doing the harmonic swing for Burning Man with the bowling ball is because uh, it has to do with the length of the strings on the piano and how they have uh, harmonic octaves and all that right i know that actually i gave a talk at intel once about writing good code and how art and beauty affects how you write your code because you can write code ugly and you can write code beautiful and when you use your iphone and underneath those Icons. There's some code running. Some poor guy wrote it somewhere in Palo Alto. That code could have been written beautifully. Could have been written ugly. And maybe the you don't see the, the difference. But those people write it, and those people actually have to improve upon it. When another person comes says, oh, you know, I want to, I need to fix his code. It makes a huge amount of difference. Whether it was architected well, whether it's modular, whether it's it's expressive, whether it's terse you know all of these things that we have in music and drawing and and sculpting you know you know like michelangelo said that you know you're done with your nothing you can remove right right not when when there's nothing you can add to the sculpture uh, sculpture when you nothing is is left to be removed same with code you know can actually today i taught a lady about programming how to take a 50 line code and do it in four lines right Wow. And she was wowed by it. Right. And I said, that's how you you know spend time more thinking and then go down to the essence. And it's so beautiful and it's it's parametrized and you can change it. And it's just, you become a happier person. And I've, I see a lot of sad people. Some people who are like kind of stuck in their daily routine of mediocrity. And, and you can see it on their face, even the way they walk, they kind of drag their feet, head down. You tell them a joke, they don't get it. There's a rainbow, they don't look at it. Mm. It's sad. When you have a beautiful rainbow, nature put it there for you so you can look at it for one second. Don't look at your freaking iPhone, right? (laughs) Look at the rainbow. Look at it. There's a, you know... It's a wake-up call. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if they don't do it, then it's, it's... Actually, probably, you could make financial investments on the company worker's ability to recognize beauty. So let's say you go to 100 companies... At 5 p.m. when people are going home and let's say you magically put a rainbow in the sky or you fly a kite or something beautiful, right? If nobody looks at your stuff, you probably don't want to invest in that company. (laughs) If they all look at their phones and they drag their feet and they just want to get in their cars, there's something missing. Yeah. Right. You know, if you have a child playing a a violin and the sun shines on that child, Imagine on the street, like a seven-year-old girl playing the, piano, the violin. If an engineer walks out of the, of a company and doesn't look at that child for a minute, there's something <laughs> wrong. Yeah, It's, it's, it's something wrong, it's missing, they're missing it. Right? So it definitely influenced, I think, my appreciation of art, my designs, both in, in uh, drawings or in woodwork or in building stuff. I think I'm looking for harmony, I'm looking for simplicity influence my karate. I want to be efficient and beautiful, because somehow in nature, whatever is beautiful is also efficient.
0: Well, anything that works well is sort of spawned from something already existing in nature. Is that not true? Right. Da Vinci's drawings about flying machines and stuff like right. that were based on the nature of wings right. and studying that stuff so right. Right. Um, you can't reinvent the wheel but maybe improve upon it and i think that's what most people are trying to do right. and i think it's a, a more elegant way to right. live is to draw from the past and what exists and do your own spin on it and yes. then be authentically
1: you as much yes. as you can and and uh in you know, uh in martial arts, you know, we talk about efficiency, of course, you know, martial arts about, about, is about uh, self-defense and all that. But then at some point, actually, that is less relevant. So if you know that you're never going to be attacked, and you never have to use karate or judo or whatever you're doing in your life, the odds of me using karate for self-defense is very small. Right? And that's not what I'm doing doing it for. I mean, it you know, it, it doesn't hurt to have that right. skill. But then it becomes almost like this pursuit of perfection of how can you Make your body make these moves with the least amount of effort, the straightest, smoothest, most harmonic. So it's almost like a dance or music or sometimes I actually do the katas on music. I just, you know, try to dance to it. And, and then when you get it, it's so satisfying. And again, these things that I'm doing, and maybe because I grew up without entertainment and I had to come up with my own entertainment. So I don't have a TV. Even now, I can't even turn the TV on. We don't have a TV. I don't need it. I have a I have like 50 projects in my brain. All I need is free time. <laughs> right. A, a pencil, that's all. I can entertain myself for next 10 years, you know. I don't need it. So because I had to live with, I had to stand in line for food for, you know, 10 years and I had to come up with brain games to keep myself entertained while standing in line and you know, I'm I'm trying I'm trying to come up with this this stuff that when I I do it, it's so satisfying. That it's better than Entertainment is fed to you because it's part of you. So it's, I think from a, I think you saw a YouTube video. They show your brain when you listen to music and your brain when you when you create music or when you play music. It's like an order of magnitude more yes. brain activity. Right? Yeah. And I know when we are playing the Chardash by uh, Monte yeah. with you that I still suck at. <laughs> uh, my brain goes on this, this high like high alert like at, at the edge of, the my, attention of my skill. All uh, my skill is at the edge and I'm still not perfect and I want to be perfect. but that pushing the, that edge is like so good because it, I feel that I, my brain needs that. And I keep trying and I'm not good at it enough and, and but I keep trying. And if I didn't, wouldn't have that and I would just passively listen to music or not listen at all, I would be a way, way worse person. So I really appreciate you teaching me Ah, (laughs) guitar. It's my pleasure. No, really. It it means a lot to me. Well. Yeah, and also for my sons, right? Yes. Um, Because, you know, I've been, I was proactively pushing, just like my father pushed me to learn German from the Lady Baroness. I was pushing my kids, you know, very well how because I appreciate you as a, as a guitar teacher and also as a person and I knew that my sons will learn good stuff from you. And now, you know, they're playing guitar and, and I keep reminding them, don't forget that you learned this from Danny, right? And, and when you get a date with a girl because of your guitar skills, remember, send Danny a thank you card, right? So it's, yeah, it, it means a lot to me. It means a lot to me, right? Oh, one more thing that, so my wife stutters co mm-hmm. stutters. And, and when she talks to me, she doesn't stutter. But when she's like an awkward social situation, or when she has to speak in public, now less so. I mean, it used to be really bad. And she worked at it, and she's getting better. Now, when she was a kid, uh, she wanted to sing. And they, they told her, no, your voice is bad. Because in Eastern Europe, many teachers were like talking down on kids. Like in the US, they're more supportive, sometimes to a uh, extreme maybe it's even too much much you know when they when they do crappy stuff you say well of a job and that may not be the best thing in romania was the other way you know everybody sucked and then some people took it some didn't take it you know for me i didn't care if they say my drawing sucks fine i'll do it again sucks i'll do it again sucks i'll do it again and illico you know she couldn't really let her voice out she had this kind of tension in her in her vocal cords because of the stuttering or whatever and then she couldn't let her voice out. So she grew up, he says, I don't know how to sing. And at age 40 or 45, I said, why don't you try to play the piano? I said, I cannot play the piano. I said, why can you not play the piano? I said, well, you know, I've been told all my childhood I cannot play the piano because I'm, I have like clumsy fingers. I said, come on. I mean, everybody should be able to play. You know, old McDonald's had a farm something, right? So she started taking piano lessons. And then she's getting better and better, like she's not perfect, but she's better. And then, then she said, well, now that you're playing piano, why don't you sing a song? She said, no, I cannot sing. She so, said, come on, just say Old or something, right? And then she started singing a few songs. And because she, I think she was in tune with the piano and then she, her own vibration in the chest kind of tuned up to that, sure. then she could sing in, in, uh, in tune. And then I almost cried when I heard my wife sing after 25 years of marriage. Wow right? And it's like, wow, because she has a nice voice. She, mm-hmm. I like her voice when she speaks. She has a very warm voice, but she just had this internal blockage that she cannot sing. Actually, she can sing. Yeah. And I would like to like open up her even more, like let sure. it all out, right? Because life is short and just, you know, enjoy what you have. And yeah. so these things are actually very meaningful to me. Very, I mean, this, they, they strike deep, deep, mm-hmm. deep, deep in my, in my, uh, nervous system it's not superficial
0: thank you for that that's i and i see a lot of people you know i teach people of all ages and i'll see some people that took piano lessons as a kid and their piano teacher told them they did bad on their recital and they never thought they could play an instrument again and then they just wanted to play guitar one day and came in and they're like i think i want to play guitar but i probably can't because my piano teacher when i was 11 told Hmm. me Right. I, I was bad at music or whatever. So, right. you know, that stuff sticks with people. And I think almost anybody can sing. They just have to want to, and then they have to sing with their voice, which sometimes is a speaking voice more so than an mm. operatic singing voice or a melodic voice. But right. I think people can sing in different ways and learn how to use the voice they have to sing if they really want to. And I think they should. Right. Um, and I think creating art and making art, you know, makes the world better. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate you as a person. Yeah. And you've taught me a lot and been very supportive. When I did my tour in Europe, you were one of the, you know, kind of mm. key components mm. to helping make that happen. So thank you the rock for that. Tour. The European yeah, rock tour. Yeah. You have a, a skill that you can do whistling. I don't think a lot of people can do all of mm. these different whistles. I don't know if mm. you want to do that. I can turn the mic down a little bit. I can bit. do
1: that. So this is the owl. <laughs> This is what I do with my fingers <laughs> this is a a gray um dove we have in in the Balkans it's called the balkan dove and then there's some sing uh, songbirds like the frog like
0: so these are the kind of things that you can do if you uh if you don't have tv right, right you can learn how to do these things Right. is there anything that i should have asked you about that i didn't
1: well i think um i can talk personally about you like the, your influence on me because you know for those of you are listening we are sitting in a relatively we are sitting in a relatively small room full of junk so there's like <laughs> guitars and and diplomas and tools and and strings and beams and ski equipment and leathers and whole bunch of uh, bows and arrows and pen pipe and an airplane and broken rocket planes up there and a bunch of tools and all that stuff, right. And then he has been coming here for many, many years. And we really develop a very strong relationship that I feel. you know we, I think we understand each other very well. and when we play some of the songs, we get it, we, we get that rhythm. And it's, it's so good. Like when we do the Hotel California, the last solo, we get in this rhythm. It's just, I'm having a high. I'm, yeah. It's almost like almost like being on drugs. I, actually, I never took drugs. I, ne- I don't know the feeling of drugs, but I think those who have, maybe you can do the same experience just by playing a duet with Danny. <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, really, and many times I go to concerts. Yldiko likes to go to concerts. So I go with her to concerts. Some are very good, some are mediocre, and we pay 50, 60 bucks for a ticket. And I'm sitting there, I said, "I wish I would be with Danny playing uh, Eagles, you know, <laughs> because even though I'm not, I'm not that good. I'm okay, but I'm not that good in in music. But I I enjoy it. I think my my joy of music way is way bigger than my my knowledge of music. <laughs> 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 and that's thanks to you because you know you encouraged me and you didn't you you know you let you let me do any song I wanted. You didn't say, sing this song or sing that song. You said, do whatever you want. And I liked that freedom. And sometimes I would pick simple songs that you were bored at and you didn't show boredom, even though you were probably bored. <laughs> and then sometimes I picked songs which were, which were too challenging for me. and probably was over my head. I liked it. And I saw some of my kids when they took a, a flute lessons or other or piano lessons, that the teaching was so strict that it turned them off. Yeah, I don't
0: think a curriculum works for music education for most people in the most effective way.
1: Yeah, so for some, for like really disciplined, disciplined children, like I, I just came back from Japan, uh, from karate, and the kids are really disciplined there. Mm-hmm. Like you have five kids, age four, all standing for like half an hour, not doing anything. So you look at them and say, yeah, I could have them, you know, sit in front of a piano for two hours and do like the curriculum based stuff. My kids were like, you know, they're jumping all the time jumping tumbling walking or climbing up the walls you can't put them to do like ta, 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 the same thing you has to be something for them so i was, actually actually now i remember what i wanted to say so i really appreciate the fact that you let me kind of let my craziness out and you didn't put any barrier on it for me i was looking forward to to the guitar lessons i was never like oh i didn't practice my chapter 2 and you never said did you practice chapter two no i didn't practice i did something else maybe i played bb king and you know i just felt like it and felt better and many times i pick a song because i enjoy singing it i enjoy playing it not because i'm good at it i just enjoy it and that one is good for me because it carries me forward right if i have to do something out of chore and you know after i can't do it for decades you know I, i can't you know, um, yeah, and the, the thing that I, and I popped back in my hand, what I wanted to say is that I really, really believe that U.S. should teach uh, music in schools, like serious music. And so my three, three boys went to public schools in Hillsborough, Oregon, 12 years, each of the three boys. In 12 years, they didn't learn one song in school, one, right? The only thing they learned was from private music teachers. My oldest son did the uh, flute and he became good at it. He made it to the band. So if you make it to the band, then you, you learn music. For the rest of them, it's pretty much zero. Pretty much zero. And I don't see why they couldn't teach the kid. They should. I mean, music is such a... It's a gift from nature or God, right? Right. Why wouldn't you embrace it? Why? I, I, just, I just... I don't get it. I just don't get it. Yeah, I think it can help people in a lot of ways. It should and... be part. It should, you have to play some instrument. just doesn't matter what it is. Just do it. And not for like... 20 minutes a week like every week two hours you do music 12 years that's it i was i was paying for my teacher uh, children's music education all their all their childhood 12 years all of them right my oldest one maybe eight years old, but still because it's valuable it's super valuable yeah why wouldn't you Right. Why wouldn't you? you buy them like expensive sneakers or basketball shoes or something <laughs> or have that money you can pay a, a music teacher and, and let them experience this amazing gifts that the brain has the ability to appreciate and make music. I think they should do it. They should do it. And, and unfortunately, you know, some those who have the opportunity to go to, to a band. They become good, and those bands are, you know, really good or high school band. But again, that's only a, you know, five percent of the student population. None of my three kids got anything in music. Zero. There were hardly any lessons. They were didn't take it seriously. The teacher wasn't good. The teacher wasn't. I don't know what happened, but they didn't learn anything. If I if I could change one thing, I would have like mandatory music from K to twelve everybody.
0: That would be impactful, I think, on yeah on a lot of things. Well, thank you so much for your time and for sharing. Sure. uh, Sure. I love your stories and your music and your art. Hmm. And so I wish you many more years of, of great success and fulfillment with that. And your book, I definitely hope everybody will check this out. So The Siblings and Other Stories. Right. Thank you. you okay. see? Thank you. Find out more at artmedianorthwest.com. A-R-T-M-E-D-I-A-N-W dot com. <laughs>